Welcome to the Pathways Senior Care Advisors Coffee and Conversation Podcast. We are a team of senior care planning professionals who partner with individuals and their families who are considering senior care living options. At Pathways, it is our mission to provide guidance to high-quality senior care that results in a safe and happy life for our clients. The goal of this podcast is to provide our clients and potential clients with relative information and interviews with subject matter experts focused on issues key to preparing for senior living. We hope you enjoy this episode of Coffee and Conversation. Welcome, everybody, to the call this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Um, I'm Stacy Carter with Pathways Senior Care Advisors. And at Pathways, what we do is we try to help clients and their families find the right path to meet those goals. We help, we equip the clients and the caregivers with information that they need to make the best decisions that they can, save time, save money, and feel less stressed when a challenge arises with with something with their parent or themselves or whatever so that they're not in that crisis situation. We started this series of Coffee and Conversations a couple weeks ago. Actually, this is our third one. Um, If you missed the other two, you can get those on um, our social media pages or on our website. Um, Good information to follow. And what this is, is basically a, we, in the three years that Pathways has been open, we have found out that there are many paths, so to speak, to, to what you want when you get to the age where you need this, whether it's assisted living, whether it's memory care, whether it's, I want to stay in my home. There's all kinds of avenues to get you to that point. And, and we hope that you would get to us sooner so that we can direct you to our partners out in the community to um, help you assist you with all of those things. So um, that's, that's kind of our goal. And um, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to turn it over to uh, Mary and she's going to introduce our speaker for today on estate planning. Thank you, Stacey. I'm Mary Coron. I'm also with Pathway Senior Care Advisors. Uh, if you were able to see the first session, you'll know that um, one of the things we talk about with Pathways and planning is that uh, we take the team approach. We'd like to have be the, the planning consultants, but we want other people at the table that are ex- experts in the different areas. And today, the, you know, we're gonna be talking about estate planning and, and, and uh, various aspects of what you need to do to plan for later stages in your life. And um, there are a lot of good lawyers in Bowling Green, but today we have a, with us a very good lawyer. Her name is Stephanie McGee, he's She's with the law firm uh, Barry Barry McGeehee, and uh, we're really pleased to have you uh, with us today, Stephanie. Well, thank you very much. I am very happy to be here. Again, as I was saying, um, I've got one one partner, so we're very a small firm. We do estate planning almost exclusively in probate matters. So um, I just appreciate the invitation. Look forward to talking with you all today. Great. Well, let's start out with just what is estate planning? Yeah, that, so that's what I say I do, right, is estate planning, but most of my clients don't really know what estate planning is. They don't call me and say, I need to do my estate planning. Um, they say, I need a will. 
Uh, most people don't really, when I say estate planning, they're like, I'm not rich, I'm not wealthy, I don't have an estate, I don't need estate planning, I just need a will, please. So my goal initially when I meet with my clients is to explain to them what, you know, really what I do, what, what estate planning is. And it's more, it's having a will is an important part of that, sure, but it's not the whole picture. Um, so when I'm meeting with my clients, I explain to them that they need to take some other things into consideration as well, such as, you know, how how do they how are their properties? Maybe a business. How will all of that be managed after you're gone, or when you're incapacitated and unable to handle that business or those properties? Um, you know, how are your healthcare decisions going to be made? Who's going to be doing that for you? Who, who's going to be managing your finances? How is your family going to be taken care of? So we're talking about issues that don't just occur at death but um, also issues that occur during our lifetime. And then, you know, also getting people in here, you know, I deal with a lot of, there's a people don't want, want to meet with a, a lawyer to do their estate planning. And, and the reasons why is number one is, we don't like to have the discussions that I, I force people to have. I ask uncomfortable questions. We don't like to face our mortality. We don't want to face the fact that we may be disabled and not able to take care of things ourselves. Um, so that's a big roadblock for a lot of people who are coming to me. Um, another thing is, is that we all have family issues and that's something people are like, oh, I've got these family issues. I'm like, I don't, that's fine. Like, let's just get it out on the table. I've got family issues too. You know, we all do. And, you know, people just don't want to dig up, you know, dig into those issues and create family strife. But we, we've really got to do that. And then some people feel like it's just too complex and too costly. Um, so I try to get them over that and tell them, hey, it's, it's, we can do this in chunks. You don't have to do it all at once. And, you know, we can break it down to where it fits within your budget. So I don't want people to, to be overwhelmed by that process or the fact that it's going to be too costly because if we don't do anything, we're just kicking that can down the road. And if we keep kicking that can down the road until we've passed away or until we're disabled, then that's going to make it number one extremely difficult on our family because all of a sudden they've got to do with it deal with it and we haven't put a plan in place and secondly if you don't do anything then the state kicks in and they have a plan for you um there is a legal system in place there's a bunch of default rules and most of us are not going to be happy with whatever that system is well yeah you know it is we face that with pathways clients all the time that they wait until something happens to force them to, to get care instead of planning ahead for the very same reason you talked about. They don't like to think about that. And I understand that and you do too, but uh, the earlier people can plan uh, for the kind of care they need and also uh, all the things you just talked about, the better. So what, what if someone does die without a will? Yeah, well, like I said, it does create, it makes it more difficult for the family. And I want to kind of explain a little bit why, why that is. So when you pass away, there is an estate that's created, whether you um, did the work beforehand and created a will or whether you did nothing. When you pass away, there's property that has to be administered and distributed and there's debts that have to be paid. There's things that have to be done when you pass away. So an estate is created for you. In most cases, a close relative is going to go to the probate court in the county in which you lived and they're going to file a petition to um, open up your estate and be appointed either an executor or administrator. 
So when you pass away with a will, it's called testate, T-E-S-T-A-T-E, -E, and the person in charge of your estate is called an executor. When you pass away without a will, it's called intestacy or intestate, I-N-T-E-S-T-A-T-E, and that and the person who's in charge of your estate at that point is an administrator, all right? So um, both of these people have the same job essentially, and that is to gather your assets, um, pay your debts, and then distribute the property um, to somebody, right? So in a will, we're gonna dictate where that property goes. What if we don't have a will? That's the question. Where does the property go? And this is where I think a lot of people are really gonna get surprised <laughs> by what they find out the legal system does. So if you're married, a lot of people want all of their property to go to their spouse. And if you, unless you write that in the will, that is not actually how your property goes in Kentucky. And these laws, I do wanna mention vary by state. So in Kentucky, there's a very strong preference to keep property, you know, we're thinking family farms and whatnot in the family bloodlines. So the surviving spouse is actually pretty far down the list. So if you have a spouse and you don't have a will, your spouse is going to get approximately one half of your assets, right? The other half is gonna to go to your family in a certain priority. So we've got, first, if you have children, that other 50% is gonna to go to your children. Um, if you don't have children, then it's gonna go back to your parents, assuming they're living. If your parents aren't living, then it goes to your siblings, okay? And if they're not living, it goes to their children, so your nieces and nephews. So all of these people take that other 50% before your spouse gets that other 50%. Then finally the spouse comes in, okay? So this is generally speaking, really not the way people want their property to go. So that's one negative aspect um, of not having a will. This, another one is if you have minor children. So if you do nothing and your children inherit maybe 50%, maybe all of your property, then that they're gonna, number one, get it outright at the age of 18, which is a lot younger than most of us are comfortable with, at least for me, I'm the mother of two teenage boys. Um, and if, um, let's say that it's, they're under the age of 18 and your spouse gets half, your children get half, that money that goes to your children, their portion of that is gonna go into what's called a blocked account. So your spouse is not, not going to be able to use that money for children without a court order. It's a very restrictive means of doing it. Whereas if you have a will, we can really dictate who's in charge of that money and you know how they're going to handle it. Um, another problem with not having a will is um, if you have a business. If you don't have a, a successor in line who's somebody who's immediately going to take over that business, then we've got, you know, what's gonna to happen to the business? I mean, it's probably gonna at least temporarily halt, halt operations until somebody can be appointed to, you know, start to run and operate that business. Um, and then the other issue, the big, and this probably is one of the biggest issues that I as an attorney have to deal with in an intestated state is who's in charge. So the court uses, again, a priority scheme for this. So if you have a spouse, it's going to be the spouse. If you, have, um, if you don't have a spouse, but you have children, it's gonna be all of your children. Um, what I deal with frequently is where I'm dealing with an older lady, most of the time, women tend to outlive men, I would say, but not always. 
but I'm dealing with an older lady who isn't married, has no children, and the people who, she doesn't do a will, so the people in charge are her nieces and nephews, okay? All of them, not just one, all of them. And you know, she may be close to one, but not others, but that entire group of people are gonna be put in charge of her estate and they might, she might not know them, they may not know her wishes, and we're gonna have, you know, quite a bit of um, issues with people having different feelings and thoughts. And I deal with this a lot with children as well. Um, you know, children have different thoughts about their parents and, you know, what they wanna do. So I like to have one person named as um, the person in charge although sometimes you can consider more but those are you know definitely a lot of the issues that happen when we don't have a plan in place you know, planning is just so important on so many different spectrums um yeah and here's another one i mean what if somebody becomes disabled stephanie yeah that's another um and, and again thinking about you know an, an older lady who doesn't have a spouse doesn't have children Who's going to take care of her you know if, if she doesn't hasn't done anything and she becomes you know mentally disabled physically disabled um you know what happens and that's that's i, see, I mean this is something i know you all see a lot and i see a lot too and um, it's very difficult you know we can become impaired at any point in our lives due to a number of things accidents um and whatnot but as we age as we all get older, we're all more than likely going to have some um, physical or mental impairments. And if you're married, you know, chances are extremely likely that likely that at least one of you, if not both of you, are going to have some impairments as you continue to age. Um, and if you become incapacitated, not able to handle things on your own, and you've done nothing to prepare for this in advance, there's not much that the legal system can do other than um, having someone um, come in and be appointed guardian. So what you'll see oftentimes is, is, particularly for people who are living alone, that social services comes in or is called in at some point when somebody alerts the authorities that someone's not being properly cared for, not taking care of themselves and family members are um, contacted. So obviously, you know, a lot of times it's somebody that doesn't really know the incapacitated individual um, and then a guardianship proceeding starts. So you have to go to the county um, attorney, Amy Milliken, her office here locally, and we start that petition. And, and the person has to, you know, you have to swear and affirm that this person's not capable of taking care of themselves. Very difficult for close family members. The person has to be evaluated by a social worker and also by a medical doctor. There's a guardian appointed to represent their interests. Um, and there's a trial. It used to be a jury trial and it still can be a jury trial, although they, the law has changed recently and we can now have bench trials, which is a trial before a judge. And there has to be a legal determination that this person's incompetent. Um, and then someone ha has to be appointed guardian and that person has a lot um, put on their shoulders all of a sudden. In addition to taking care of the person and handling their finances, they have to report to the court annually as to every bit of income that they received and every expense that they made on that person's behalf. And they also have to report on their care, you know, their health care and how their living arrangements are. So it's, it's a, you know, it's expensive and it's difficult. And again, it's one of those situations where you might need to, 
you as the incapacitated person may be taken care of by someone you don't really know who doesn't really know you. Whereas if you, if you, you know, put proper documents in place to begin with, um, you could have had some direction and some say in all of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one thing we see frequently, even when there has been some planning done and there are documents in place where I have an adult child who sits in our office and says their, their parent has dementia and it's too late to ask them what they really wanted and what they really, uh, you know what they need, but you don't know what their wishes are, uh, were to, to, uh, in terms of what kind of care they wanted. So um, going the whole circle with the plan is important. So let's talk about what are the key estate planning documents that everyone needs? Yes. Um, well, that's, and this is something that I go over with all of my clients, because again, as I was saying, most clients just want, want, are thinking about that will. They're really not thinking about these other documents. So this is really what I'm getting ready to go through here is, is something that I tell all of my clients. Okay. These are the documents you need. Um, so the first one, of course, is that last will and testament. Um, in that document, you get to name who's in charge of administering your estate. Um, you can, you know, identify who gets what property and how that's to be distributed. In some cases, we might want to set up a trust for minor children. I, I kind of talked about that a little bit earlier. That would be a good place or other dependents. Um, we might have someone with special needs um, that needs to be addressed as well. So we can put all of that stuff in the will. Um, as part of this will process, I do want to bring to your attention that not all property that you own passes through the will. It really depends upon the, the nature of the asset, so what type of property is and how it's titled. So for example, um, the easiest example for me to give you of this is retirement plans, so like 401ks, IRAs. Those have designated beneficiaries on them, so they don't actually go through the will unless you've messed up and not named a designated beneficiary, which is a terrible idea. So if you haven't if you don't know, go check right now and make sure you have um, individuals designated as your beneficiaries on those accounts because um, those should not and, and generally do not go through the will. So part of that estate planning process is for me to gather all of this financial information and help you evaluate it so that we can determine how that property is going to pass and make sure the will and the assets that you own coordinate and those um, all of those assets pass the way that you want them to. So it's more than just preparing a will. It's really an evaluation of all of your assets. So I, I do like to bring that to people's attention because they always wonder why I'm asking for all of their personal financial information. It's really, really key to the process of what I'm doing. All right, so the second document you need is a durable financial power of attorney. Um, a durable power of a of durable, Power of attorney is a document that allows you to appoint someone, and this person is called your agent or your attorney in fact, to manage your property, your financial affairs, and to deal with any legal issues that you may have. So you can give your agent very broad powers, basically the power to do anything that you could do with your, with your property in your own right, or you can limit it. You can give them limited powers generally in a state planning practice, we're wanting to, to the extent you're comfortable, to give broad powers because I'm trying to make sure that the agent that we name can really do everything for you. Um, so as part of that discussion, 
we want to make sure that we really, really trust the person we're naming because we're giving them substantial power over our property. Um, now there's, there's legal requirements they have to follow. They have to use due care to act for your benefit in accordance with the terms of the document and in accordance with the law. However, if somebody nonetheless spends your money for their own benefit, it's gonna be very hard to get that money back. So we have to put a lot, we're putting a lot of trust in that person. So we really have to be careful um, and evaluate whether or not we're picking the right people. But having that document really makes things simpler because if we have this document, we probably don't have to go through that guardianship process later on. We don't have to have all of those court accountings and, and rules in place. And we don't have to go to the court order if we need to transfer property or sell real estate because we're gonna put those into the power of attorney document. So it's less having to go to court, which is generally a good thing. Um, all right, so that's two, I've covered the will and the financial power of attorney. The next document you need, everybody needs, is a living will directive. This is sometimes called an advanced care directive. And a living will is a document that describes your wishes regarding life prolonging care if you lack decisional capacity and you are terminally ill or permanently unconscious. So what do, what do those words mean? <laughs> That's what my clients often ask me. So you suffer from a terminal condition if your treating physician and one other doctor agree that you suffer from an incurable and irreversible condition that will result with, with death in a relatively short period of time and you are permanently unconscious if two doctors agree that your condition shows an absence of cerebral cortical function. All right, so that's kind of the standard and we're really talking end of life decisions here. And I also wanna emphasize that you also have to lack decisional capacity where this document really doesn't come into play. And so once the doctors have determined that you have this um, medical condition, then they look at the document and you can either direct that life prolonging care be withheld or withdrawn, or you can say, I'm, I want somebody to make that decision for me at the time. And you can appoint somebody who would deal with it when and if that issue arises for you. Um, so that's an important document, but it, and it's a medical directive, but it's very limited in scope. So that leads me to the fourth one that you need, which is a durable healthcare power of attorney. And a healthcare power of attorney is kind of like a financial power of attorney, but it deals with medical care and healthcare decisions that you need to make. Um, obviously broader in scope than what that living will directive covers. It, it deals with end of life decisions. The durable healthcare power of attorney deals with a much broader set of decisions. And again, only if you can't, you don't have decisional capacity to make those decisions on your own. Um, and again, that healthcare power of a document also helps you avoid that guardianship. So those are the four documents um, that everybody everybody needs. I mean, some people need other documents, but those are the, the basic documents that um, I highly encourage every, every adult to have. Well, um, but there's a thing called the living trust. Who needs those? Yeah, a lot of people want to know about, about living trust and what that is. And when Everybody almost always asks me about trust. They've heard something about them, but they don't really know what they are. So I want to tell you all a little bit about that. Most people either think that um, they've been told that you everybody has to have a trust, or they've been told that trusts are complex and costly, just a way for an attorney to make money. Don't bother with them. Okay. 
and neither one's obviously the right answer. It's somewhere in between. Um, trust can be helpful in various situations. We've talked about some of them. So if you've got minor children, if, if you've um, got a disabled person, a person with special needs, you probably you might need a trust. If you've got a business, you might wanna create one for business management purposes. And people with very large estates, um, there's a number of techniques that they can use to minimize taxes. So what, what is a trust? So in a trust, you, you transfer all or part of your property to a trustee, okay? So a trustee can be you, it can be an individual, or it might be a bank with trust powers. And then that trustee manages your property that you've given to them um, with written instructions on, you know, how to, how to administer the trust, how to distribute that, that property to the beneficiary, okay? The beneficiaries are the people who benefit from the trust. So they get the benefit of the money that you put in that trust. In a living trust, you are usually the person who creates it, you're usually the trustee, and you're usually also the beneficiary of it. In some other types of trust, you may not be the trustee or you may not be the beneficiary. It just depends upon the circumstances. There's tons and tons of trust out there. And so it really takes an evaluation of your situation, your property, and whether or not a trust is appropriate. Um, some of the other advantages of trust, just briefly, you know, sometimes people want to avoid probate. You can do that. Um, sometimes people use them for privacy because probate is a um, public proceeding and maybe people don't know, want, you know, want the whole world to know what they have and who they're giving their property to. Trust can help you avoid that. Um, trusts are great for managing your property. So if you are worried about who's going to manage your property as you get older, as you age, trusts are a great way to do that as well. Um, but not not everybody needs one. So you just really need to sit down with your attorney, describe their situation, describe your situation, and they'll help you decide if you need one or not. Okay, and um, I guess another thing I'm thinking about here, Stephanie, is should I be concerned about taxes after I die? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, a lot of people are, are worried about what, what's gonna be the tax ramifications when I die? What are the death taxes? You know, you hear that in the media, that term death taxes a lot. Well, you know, they're like, what is that? So there isn't actually a quote death tax. Death taxes is just a, you know, a common word that's used to describe a number of types of taxes that are sometimes incurred when someone passes away. The two biggest ones are the inheritance tax and the estate tax. So when we're talking about the inheritance tax, that's a state tax. So Kentucky does, not all states have them, but Kentucky does have an inheritance tax. Whether or not it's gonna apply to you depends upon who you're leaving your property to. So Kentucky taxes based upon the relationship of the, the, don, the donor of the gift, all right? So if you're leaving property to someone you're closely related to, they're probably exempt from Kentucky inheritance tax. So for example, if you're leaving it to your spouse or your children, your grandchildren, your parents, your siblings, probably don't have to worry about Kentucky inheritance tax. If you're leaving your property to nieces and nephews um, or somebody that you're completely not related to at all, then there's gonna be some Kentucky inheritance tax. So the further the relationship, the more the tax is going to be. 
Um, the other tax that people are worried about is a federal estate tax. And for most of us right now, that's not a concern. The reason why is that um, the estate tax exemption is extremely high right now. Each individual can ex is exempt, has an exemption of $11.58 million for 2020. And that's gonna keep going up a little bit through 2025. And I'm gonna put a little asterisk right, that, right there next to that all the way up to 2025 because that may not be the case. But let's just assume nothing changes and we each have this $11.58 million exemption. If we're married, guess what? We get to double it. So then we get to shelter $23 million and change um, before we have to worry about estate taxes. For, so for the large majority of people, federal estate taxes is simply not an issue. Now, all of this is subject to change, right? So the way the, current, the law currently reads is January 1, 2026, our exemptions are gonna go back down to 5 million, but indexed for inflation. Um, so that's gonna hit more people. And so the, the, a greater concern for estate planners, this is all the, you know, what we're talking about right now is that we don't think that's gonna last, right? We don't think that the, the current law is going to last because the federal government has spent trillions upon trillions of dollars in stimulus packages and they're talking about another one as we speak and we've got an upcoming election so most people think that that's going to change sooner than 2026. Um, some proposals would drop that exemption amount down to 3.5 million dollars per person so at that point yeah we're going to have some people who might need to do some estate tax planning um, as part of their estate planning. But for most, you know, so I guess that kind of, the answer is it depends. <laughs> yeah, and you know, estate planning, I think that brings to mind, I mean, uh, I've had my estate plan reviewed three times in my lifetime because things have changed. So mm -hmm. it's an ongoing, uh, you need to do uh, ongoing updates with your attorney as well, because as you say, things do change, uh, not just taxes. Okay, I made an appointment. I called your office, Stephanie. I made an appointment to come and see you about uh, either a document or a whole, a, an estate plan. What do I what I do I need, need to do to prepare for that meeting with you? What documents do I need to bring? Um, what yeah. information do I need to bring to the meeting? Well, making that call is a great first step. That's that's really the hardest part. But then it's like, what do I what do I do to get ready for it? And I think putting some thought into some matters is, is going to help you a lot because your a lawyer is going to ask you a lot of personal questions and, and, and expect answers because we really can't do anything until you've thought through these things. So doing some advanced thinking, you know, think about what your goals are. Um, how do you want to be cared for if you're disabled? Do you want to, do you have long-term care insurance? Do you want to stay in home? Who's gonna be your caregiver? Who's gonna be your alternate caregiver? Um, you know, think of, think about those things. Who's going to take care of your spouse if you have minor children or children with special needs? How are they going to be taken care of? Um, if you have a business, what's your plan? Do you have somebody who's going to buy it? Are you going to try to pass it on to your family? Are you going to liquidate it and sell it? Um, what's your business succession plan? Um, do you have any ideas about charity? Is there a charity that you might want to benefit at your death? Or maybe you want to start initiating some, some lifetime giving to a charity? Um, all of those are questions that they're going to be asking you. 
Um, the second thing that we're going to delve into is your assets. So, um, you know, I'm going to want to know what assets you have, how all of those assets are titled. I'm going to ask about the value of those assets. I'm going to ask if there's beneficiaries, designated beneficiaries of retirement plans, insurance. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really going to delve deep. So if you can pull out, start pulling out your deeds, your titles to your cars, your retirement plans, um, and a recent account statement for your retirement plan, same thing for your life insurance, the actual policy document, um, any current statements, investment accounts, checking accounts, pull it all together and put it in a binder. That's not only good for you, um, so that you can see what you have and, and double check all of your beneficiaries that you've probably forgotten about, but it will really help your attorney. Now, I have a questionnaire. So once um, my clients set up an appointment with me, we send them a questionnaire that they bring to the appointment. So that kind of, and I, I have even more in-depth questions that really helps people get their minds going and, and thinking about what I'm gonna ask so that they, they come prepared because I really want that first meeting to be productive because the, the less time, you know, that I'm dealing with it. Obviously, it's cheaper for my clients. So the more the more thought you put into it, the, the cheaper your estate plan is going to be. So, and once you've met with your attorney, then they'll help you develop a plan, and it might be staged. You know, do I always tell my clients to do at least one thing. If you can't do it all right now, that's okay. Do at least one of the things we've talked about. And then once you've done that one thing, the next thing will be a little bit easier and the next piece will be a little bit easier. And then also, as you mentioned, you know, I uh, let my clients know that, hey, all of this stuff we just created for you, it's a work in progress. You're probably going to want to change it in a few years because as your life change, as laws change, we need to reevaluate these documents and we need to change them. They're not something you can just shove away in a drawer and say, yay, I did it. You, you got to stay on top of it. So um, just a few things um, that I, you know, tell my clients that I hope um, you all can, you know, take with you and, and use in, in your life and in your jobs as well. Thank you. <clears throat> Reflecting on that, uh, one place that in that process of planning for that meeting that Pathways can be a great help to you is helping you know what the care options are. Uh, so many people come to us and they, they so many people will say, I want to stay at home. And I get that. Uh, I'm at that age that I'm trying my best to, to remain independent and stay in my home. But sometimes that's not the best option for you. And uh, the other thing that people don't really understand is the cost of care. You mentioned long-term care insurance, and that certainly helps a lot. But um, I think a, a lot of our clients that come to us when we sit down and start talking about the options that they have and, and how much they cost, that's usually a surprise to them. So, yeah. um, but Pathways will be glad to sit down with you if you, as you plan for that meeting to meet with your attorney. Stephanie, thank yeah. you so much. And does anybody have any questions? You're muted. Unmute yourself, Robin. There we go. Okay. Um, hi. <laughs> um, if you have a trust from a different state done years ago, and then you do some of these, the four things that you're talking about, you do them here subsequently. Um, does the, do the newer things 
supersede the trust or how do you revoke the trust? Yeah, not necessarily. So um, let's say, you know, you've got a trust. This happens a lot. You've got a trust that you did in another state. You moved to Kentucky. Num the number one question is, is it valid in Kentucky? And the answer is usually yes, because states will recognize, if it was validly created in the estate in which you created it, then Kentucky's going to recognize it. So even though you've done all of these documents, unless those documents specifically revoke that trust, then that is probably still a good trust. So it's, it's actually fairly simple to revoke. Well, it depends on the type of trust. <laughs> if it's a revocable living trust, the most common type that people have, it's actually fairly easy to revoke it. You just really need to you know, sign a piece of paper that says I revoked this trust. Now, I wouldn't just do that without consulting with somebody because did you trans, there's a lot of questions. You know, did you transfer assets to that trust? Does it own anything? So if you did, we don't want to just revoke it. We want to get those those assets out of that trust, um, you know, just to clean it all up and, and, you know, so we don't have any issues later. So if, um, if what somebody needed help with was to remove the house that was in the trust and take it out of the trust and pass it back to the person, is that something that you do and is that uh, expensive to do? And it really depends. So it, it, when, if it's in a revocable living trust, you know, that, like I said, that most common trust, and it's really not that difficult. What it takes is having somebody review the, revoke, review the trust document to make sure that that asset can come back out. Because sometimes we, we put them in there with the idea we're not gonna pull them back out. So we have to see if it's possible um, so that we follow it properly. And then it just requires, assuming you can, it just requires a deed done by you to yourself or whomever to get it out. So it's not that, it's not that costly, but it's a, you know, a, a couple meetings with a lawyer and review and, and preparing the deed. Do you do, um, do you charge for consultations so that you know how much the eventual cost would be like, you know, that you sit down together and you say, okay, in the end, I'm gonna need a new trust or I'm gonna need my trust revoked. How do you, before you sit down, how do you know what that's going to be? Yeah, I usually do. Now, not all attorneys charge for initial consultations. I usually do because I'm, I'm usually having a true, I'm, I'm giving away legal advice and having a true consult. Um, so I usually charge for that. And then at that meeting, I will, you know, kind of come up with the plan if I can right there on the spot and tell them what the, the range what I expect the range to be, um, depending on what um, my client's individual circumstances are. Okay. Okay, great questions. Anybody else? Um, Stephanie, yes. can you speak to the complications with the blended family in estate planning and some of the things that can really, really go wrong if they don't address them? Yes, okay. There's, yeah, so many things that can go wrong there. Um, Number one, if you, if when you've got people, you know, two, two individuals come together who both have children from other marriages, um, how you, if you give all of your property to your spouse, which most people want to do, then that the surviving spouse dictates the control of those assets after your death. So in most cases, I'm going to say not all, but in most cases, that property is probably going to end up to your spouse's children and not yours. 
So that is one of those situations where I do encourage clients to get a trust so that you can set up those assets in trust for your spouse. But when your spouse passes away, you, you dictate where that property goes. So you don't lose that control. So that's just one of the messy ways <laughs> um, that blended families. And again, that issue of who's in charge and, and the, you know, you can imagine the um, conflict that emerges when, especially both parents, both of those individuals are gone and you've got these children from separate families um, with different goals and different thoughts in mind. Yep. So all the more reason to have those documents in place to say, these are, this is who in who's in charge and this is how the property is going to go. Thank you. And another thing that made me think about is um, when someone predeceases, like my mother died before my grandmother died. And so when grandmother passes, it was not written correctly. And so I'm one of five children that got left out of that. Yeah, that I see that so often. So um, what happens and <laughs> I don't even know how to stop this. It's unfortunate, but when um, let's say that there's grandma and there's several children and then when, when one of those children die, sometimes the, and I don't know if it's undue influence or, um, so you've got to watch that. The older people get, you've got to watch taking them in to get wills drawn up. That, that's on me. You know, I've got to really make sure that these people want to do and um, want to do what they're doing and know what they're doing and they're not being unduly influenced, but you will see people get cut out. You know, well, that person died, them and all of their heirs because they passed away and then it gets redistributed to the other living children. That is incredibly common. Thanks. I have another question. Mm -hmm. if, if, uh, if, if I have like some of those documents drawn up with you and then down the line, I want to change something in it. Somebody mm -hmm. passes away and I want to change a name. Is it as simple as where I can initial it and have it notarized or do I have to have a new document drawn up? You need to come back to the attorney or an attorney and do that properly because um, wills, generally speaking, have very stringent um, execution requirements. So they've got to be signed by you and two witnesses and a notary. And so you, you want to make sure it's done right. Just, yeah, signing it and initialing it, notarizing it probably isn't going to cut it. So there's two ways to change a will. One is by codicil, which means you, you've got this will and then you do a codicil, which changes the terms of the will. So when somebody dies, they take both of those documents. They take the will and the codicil, which is essentially an amendment. Sometimes people, they make a change that they don't want the whole world to know about. So that requires us to, to do a whole new will other than a codicil. So it really depends upon the type of change that you're wanting to make. You know, if it's a fairly small change, sometimes an amendment, a codicil will work. Um, and that's less money, obviously. Um, sometimes it's a pretty substantial change and we just have to start from scratch and that's more expensive. And that's just how it is. Now, if, uh, if the person, if your family member can't find your will, but they know who your attorney is, do they, are they kept on file with the attorney's office so they can just go there and, and get the copy? Hopefully, I mean, I, I keep copies of my client's wills. Um, I'll also indicate who is supposed to be maintaining the original, whether it's my office or somebody else. I like to have a note of that, um, but I'm not, you know, that's my practice. Hopefully uh -huh. others have similar practices, but 
they might not. That's a good question to ask the attorney when you meet with them. Okay. Okay, any other questions? Well, these are great questions. Again, uh, you've been hearing Stephanie McGehee-Shacklett with Barry McGehee Law Firm here in Bowling Green. Um, thank you so much, Stephanie, for presenting today. Uh, Pathways Senior Care Advisors really appreciates uh, you taking the time and we've, I've learned a lot and I hope everybody uh, listening to this presentation has. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pathways Senior Care Advisors Coffee and Conversation podcast. If you have additional questions about today's topic or would like to learn more on how Pathways Senior Care Advisors can help you or your loved one find high quality senior care, visit us online at pathwayssca.com or call 270-901-1878.